Good afternoon. If you would open up your Bibles to John 5, we're going to start there today. Let me see if I can... How about that? I think that'll lock on right there. Modern problems require modern solutions. John chapter 5. One of the things that we want to do is we ask questions about certain things in life. And we want to know what the Bible has to say about them. Well, we kind of have to go through a particular study or uh, an appreciation of a number of different passages. Some topics in terms of Scripture don't uh, limit themselves to just one passage. And so we have to be prepared to do some digging. We have to be prepared to uh, move in different areas and, and, and assemble our thoughts together in that way. So last night's lesson was definitely much more textual. This will be much more topical because uh, the Judgment Day, again, we have a number of passages that tell us certain things about it. But I don't believe we have one passage that tells us everything about it. And so what, part of what we're doing is we're going into a, a deductive mode about this sort of thing to understand what Jesus says here about it. In John 5 and verse 24, John 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. We talk about the day of judgment. People uh, have, we have conversations. And I've been asked before, and maybe you've been asked before, are we living in the end times? And of course, those of us who have studied the subject will, will typically say, well, yes, we are in the end times, but we know that because the apostles lived in the end times as well. Uh, from that time until now has been essentially the last phase of this whole thing. And the general answer I have to people is that the Lord is going to burn up the earth at a particular time. And we're going to discuss those passages. It's important when we talk about the day of judgment, though, we do want to distinguish that. Uh, first of all, I do want to discuss how there is a sense where God has a continuous judgment. There's an ongoing aspect to God. There are certain things that he tolerates and there are certain things that he does not tolerate. And there is an ongoing daily measure that we look at ourselves and we see how we measure up to that. And we know that God daily is looking at us and discerning and judging us in a sense. So we want to note that it's not just that there is no judgment until the day of judgment. We want to also note that 
when we talk about judgment, we know that God has specific judgments. He has specific times where he looks at what humanity has done. And he says, well, this I cannot abide. This, this I can't allow to go on for forever. And so he brings it to an end. We also want to discuss today the order of the last judgment. What we note about that and the order of those things. And then finally, our mindset. What do I think about this? And I'm just going to spoil the whole thing and say, my mindset needs to be, I must go to heaven. And that, that really, the needful aspect of that is so important for us to have. I must go to heaven. I don't want to just go to heaven if my family is there. I don't want to just go to heaven if my friends are there. I want to go to heaven no matter what. And that needs to be really the, the end result and the conclusion in all of this. So if we reach the end of this lesson and you're not quite there yet, I understand. I get that. I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions I can. I mean, I have answers for you on some things. But I know at the end of the day, the apostles wanted to be in heaven with the Lord. Paul wanted to be in heaven with the Lord. Jesus wanted to be in heaven with his Father. And he knew that this life was just a transitory aspect of that. And we know that too. But even still, I want to note something about the passage we just read in verse 24 there. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Well, what's Jesus talking about there? I just want to plainly say that if I trust in God, and if I am who he, he uh, wants me to be, or at the very least I'm striving toward that, I should be living as if I'm already in heaven. You see, heaven's not just some far-off, uh, removed place that, that maybe someday I'll get to if I'm really, really good. Heaven needs to be a mindset where I'm living here in heaven right now. Not that this world is heaven, but that heaven is a mindset. I believe, by the way, that, that the new Jerusalem that we see toward the end of the book of Revelation, there's an aspect of that that's already fulfilled. And so we need to live that way. Well, let, let's, let's go into what we're talking about today. God's continuous judgment. What are we talking about here? Well, in Romans 2... In verse 12, I think we get a sense of God's holy, eternal standard. Paul writes in Romans 2 and verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And I think there's a, there's a paragraph in the middle of that that starts toward, uh, I believe, verses 12 or, or 13. I don't have that in my paragraph here. But the sense that as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law, skipping forward in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, Paul gives us this little interesting glimpse into how God historically dealt with those who were not part of the Hebrew nation and who did not have the law necessarily. We note here the mercy and the grace that God shows. 
in saying with those Gentiles, those who aspire, those who act in such a way that conforms to my law, even though they haven't given that law, they're going to be judged on that basis. So that tells us something about how God continually looks at us. Have you ever noticed, by the way, when the Bible talks about every one? I really love that phrase because it's all-inclusive, but also focused on the individual. You see, the Bible is focused on the individual. God looks at the individual. And and from that, I can understand that I'm not going to be saved because of what group I'm in. Even so far as to say, I'm not necessarily going to be saved because of the church I'm a member of. I have to look at this from a standpoint of, I am special to God and God is looking at me. Now, if I'm living a sinful, wicked life, that's a terrifying proposition. But when I'm trying to be faithful and I'm working in his statutes, then, then I'm just like that Gentile. And that's the thing. That we're, we're all Gentiles when we really look at and think about this. Not one of us can say we're born into God's kingdom. And so we trust in him to be able to have this, this eternal, holy standard. And see, we don't get to pull that standard down. We aspire to it. We drive forward towards it. And God's judgments are constant. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, note something here. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now this is in the middle of a thought. But I want to note something here. It says, he did not spare the angels who sinned. He cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness. Sounds like punishment to me. But the interesting thing about this is, he's not done with them. They're reserved there for judgment. So, just because God has dealt out some form of punishment doesn't mean that that's the end of those things. They're reserved for judgment, yet the punishment, in a sense, has already been meted out. And I would go so far as to say that the chains of darkness here might even be self-imposed. That's just speculation on my part. Uh, Here's the thing, too, I want to note. It's very hard to go into debate about uh, eschatology. I've known good men who have done it, and and, and I think you really need to be read up and studied on what you're looking at. But the difficulty here is that that there's there's some things that we we know for sure, but there's other things we really don't know for sure. So we need to be careful about nailing down certain things about Judgment Day. Some of our friends will talk about rapture, you know, pre-tribulation rapture versus post-tribulation rapture. And let me say, all of that is, is, is actually unhealthy speculation based on misreadings and misunderstandings of the book of Revelation. So we need to be very careful about that. But God, if we think about this verse in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, we compare and contrast this with the rich man in Luke 18. Wasn't torment just as much of a consequence as anything? But we note also that rich man... If we understand what Judgment Day bears with it, that that torment seems to be a waiting place of some kind, even though that within itself is punishment. You know, again, I don't mean to be up here throwing question marks out. I'm not trying to do that, but I think it's important that we look. Just look at what the Bible says in Luke 17. Luke 17. I forgot to bring my water bottle up here. Give me just one moment. Turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, 
interesting passage here because of what Jesus says. In verse 22, he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Later on in verse 26, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. That passage might give us pause. What's he talking about? The days of the Son of Man. Isn't there just one judgment day? Are we looking at just one end of the world situation? I think it's important that we note while the New Testament clearly shows there is a specific day that we should be preparing for in our future, we also have to recognize that the judgment of God is multifaceted and spans all the ages of mankind. Remember, God is a complex being. He's not just this super simple being. In the same way, we shouldn't easily simplify his judgments and statutes. I remember talking with a preacher once about the uh, book of Isaiah and saying, you know, all these passages about the kingdom, and, and is he talking about the, the last days? Is he talking about 70 AD? Is he talking about uh, Pentecost? And he kind of said, well, why can't it be, you know, why can't it be more than one? And, and I, I, I want to be careful with how I say that too, but... My point is that, that we don't have to necessarily spend so much time needling down and figuring out, oh, this passage is absolutely about this, and this passage is absolutely about that. Sometimes it's just sharing in prophecy. So we need to look at that. An uh, interesting quote by a fellow named E.C. Robinson. He says, Man is being judged every day. Every man honest with himself knows where he is going to. Those who are not honest with themselves are playing a trick. And if they're not careful they'll get a trick played on them. We have a reality of life that we have to deal with that, that there's a sense that we know that God, God understands our hearts. The sinful person knows that if he wants to be a Christian, he wants it to be real. So he knows that there are some habits he's going to have to give up. There are going to be some things that he knows that are wrong that he's going to get rid of. And so the big question is not so much whether you need to give up something. The big question is, why haven't you already given it up? Why, why are you not already working toward those things? Here's the thing. God can't let sin go on without a solution. That's one thing we know about him. In Acts 17 and verse 30, on Mars Hill, Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead so you see God raised his son Jesus from the dead in order to show us that there is indeed a resurrection day coming and that day of judgment that resurrection day it all kind of blends together in terms of what we think of here Paul later wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, which is, I love this passage because there is this great theme that, for example, I mentioned earlier the rapture. Our, our premillennialist friends really don't, don't deal with this very often, I believe. There's this great theme of readiness in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness. Consciousness, excuse me. So preparedness is a big portion of what we read about. I think some people get so wrapped up in Jesus' prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24 that they don't read on to Matthew 25. And understand that in Matthew 25, the major theme there is being ready. That's the most important part. We can debate, we can talk about what's going to happen first and how is this going to happen, what's going to happen to the world, how's it going to burn up. And we can talk about that, but the, the, the main thing, the main goal of all this is to understand that God is going to win this battle and ultimately he will always win and I need to be on his side and I need to be ready. It takes preparation. Another interesting quote, a fellow named R.W. Dale out of the Expositor, March 1898. He says, men say, where's the need of it? We're being judged now. Every hour that passes bear witness, bears witness before God to what we are. We ourselves are putting in the evidence day after day. The court is already open. The judge is already sitting. And further, the penalties of sin and the rewards of fidelity, these are being received already. They're not to begin in another world and after death. Here and now, the laws of the universe, which are the laws of God, eternally just, are executing themselves. The reward comes. The punishment comes at once. It is this that gives solemnity and dignity to life. Yes, but if so, what did Christ mean? What did Paul mean? He spoke of a judgment which for every man lies in the future and of penalties and rewards which are to be the result of that judgment. If this theory be true, that the laws of God eternally just are executing themselves, there is no need for the intervention of Christ as judge. If the rewards and penalties come now, it is an error to be looking forward to an awful hour when there shall be a revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I think what we really need to understand is that at all at once, there's a sense that we know God is continuously judging. But the most important part of our life is the understanding of where we're going when this life leaves. And, and, and we don't want to let this, the continuous judgment of God distract us from the preparedness we need for the specific judgment to come. So we move on in thinking about that. What about God's specific judgment? And I don't know if I really want to read through all these passages, but just a few things that you might note. Uh, remember the flood. I mean, that's one of the most obvious, one of the earliest judgments of God. We note in Genesis 6 and verse 5 that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Some people say, well, the world is bad and it's getting worse. Well, I think about that and I look at this passage and I'm, like, I'm not really sure that it's as bad as this. And I think the light of Jesus Christ has made a whole lot of difference in our world. So we can thank God for that. That's a very specific judgment. I believe the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the, the confusing of the peoples, that was a judgment against humanity. In uh, Isaiah 13, in verse 19, you know, skipping ahead, we note that in that same basis that the Chaldeans would face their judgment in Babylon. In Jeremiah 49, Edom is said to will be in astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at its plagues. 
As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Here's Esau's descendants being judged by God. Amos chapter 4, in verse 11, I overthrew some of you. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, you were like a firebrand, plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I, I do think Amos' prophecy is specifically toward the northern kingdom of Israel. Zephaniah 2, in verse 9, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. How many more places could we go to? I mean, I, I recognize that there's more than this. But one thing I want us to note, however, is that that I, I think there is an aspect here where there has been a day of the Lord for maybe about just, a, just about every nation in the world at some time or another. Whether he did that supernaturally, and I believe with Sodom and Gomorrah that was a supernatural thing, or providentially where he allows one army to overrun and overtake that. And I bring all this up for us to, again, think about this in terms of the final judgment. Because one of the things that, that we pull from these passages is, there's typically a people who is unfaithful or wicked in this context. God sends this judgment upon them. And in some cases, maybe there's nothing left of them at all. In some cases, there is a remnant. Especially for uh, Israel and Judah, there was a remnant. But what's interesting about the final judgment in terms of what we think of uh, in terms uh, of the judgment day, I don't think there's going to be any remnant at all except for heaven. Uh, the Bible tells us in Peter's letters that the earth will be burned up. There's not going to be anything left behind. And which tells you that book series is kind of, you know, questionable. Uh, you know, the, the idea of being left behind. But it's, it's, in its very sense, too, it goes back to Jeremiah. Because there are two points in Jeremiah that we want to look at, too. In Jeremiah 4 and verse 27, For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Jeremiah 30 and verse 11 a similar statement, For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. One thing we note here is that God always leaves the faithful, always encourages the faithful. There's always a protection for the faithful. And that was in, in the same sense in Jeremiah's day. In Hebrews 9, we find something, I think, very conclusive. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Thank you all for your patience with getting that sip of water. 
Hebrews 9.27, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I don't know how you can get around Hebrews 9.27 in that sense. We die, and then there's the judgment. And it's important for us to live with an understanding of that. The final judgment is centered upon the Lord. He is the one executing this. He is the one that's going to carry it out. And so in thinking about the judgment, maybe that's where our heart needs to be, in thinking about him. How easy is it for us to consider and think that, that maybe I'm not ready to go? Maybe I, have, uh, maybe I feel like I have my life ahead of me. Maybe I feel like I've got enough comforts here that I don't want to leave behind. I will say from experience, you can tell the difference when you have a faithful Christian on their deathbed ready to go and be with the Lord and someone who obviously is not ready. There's a great panic and a great unease there. And I think it's healthy for us to think about that for ourselves. How, you know, what, how am I going to face that? What's, what's my emotion and feeling about death? If I died today, how would I feel about that? I think part of our attitude has to be focused on the Lord at the very least. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, who will also confirm me to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, by the way, to note that the Corinthian brethren had a slew of problems. And in that passage in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's not talking about uh, how thankful he is for their good deeds. Because frankly, there's not a whole lot to be proud of in that moment. But he is grateful for the good things that God has planted in them. The grace that he's done toward them. And I'll tell you, in days where I feel completely worthless and a failure... It's so comforting to know what the Lord has done in my life, even though I myself may have failed. And that helps me face that day of judgment, not with a dread or a terror, but with a hope, with a knowledge that he's going to confirm me in that day. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, delivers such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, if we pause right there, what a sad story that would be. Just cast him out. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But the hope is this, going on, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's our hope. When we have to uh, discipline our brethren and our sisters, we're hoping for their betterment. We're hoping that they turn a new leaf and, and realize how serious these things are. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will understand, even to the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now some people, I want to pause and say, some people look at the writings of the apostles and think, well, well, they must have thought that Judgment Day was coming any day now. 
And I think they kind of were. I mean, they, they were thinking from a standpoint that it could happen any time. But I think it's important to note they never mention a promise that it's going to happen, you know, it's definitively going to happen soon. They just knew the possibility was there. And, and that, that brings us closer to them. It helps us understand that, that we're really in the same place. We don't know when this is going to happen. It could happen 10,000 years from now, if the Lord wills it. But we will be ready regardless, because we don't know what's going to happen. Philippians 1, I love this encouragement that Paul writes to them in verse 6. Philippians 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Same uh, passage in, in chapter 2, verse 16. Holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So the day of judgment is centered upon God. It has to be. And that, that has to be our focus there. The judge is Christ. And, and I think we've already established this, so I'm not going to go too deep into it because I don't believe time allows us. But you do have your handouts here. It's important to know, though, that he is the judge. He is the one who will be judging the earth. He doesn't come back to say, okay, you got one last chance. Let's have a thousand years of, of life in this earth. And you'll get another chance to be faithful. That's not in the Bible. We can't read that anywhere. But what we can read is that we, we will die and there will be the judgment. To understand the outcome too though, we have to be willing to discern. In three passages I have up here as well, uh, is in Matthew 10 and Matthew 11 and Matthew 12, this sense that uh, you need to understand that it's going to be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment for those who reject the Messiah. And that, that relationship, that discernment of understanding the need to trust in Jesus, the need to trust in His Word, and not let the things of this world make us say, oh, but what about this part in the Bible? What about this part of the Bible? And raise up questions and kick up dust. We have to trust in the Lord. We have to trust in Jesus to show us these things. Again, uh, any questions you have, uh, feel free to, to, to look at that and, and, and feel free to approach me on that. I want to move on to the order of the last judgment. We want to note the date is and will be unknown to us. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, please. Second Peter 3 and verse 10, this is, this is really the passage that we come to this conclusion from, that the world will be burned up. In Second Peter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Sometimes in the New Testament it's helpful for us to kind of figure out and really maybe ask the question, 
you know, it, it, are we talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD here? Because some of the imagery might suggest that. But this is very serious imagery here that actually talks about a finality to it. And uh, again, there's not a whole lot that we want to go into that for, but we, we might have some, some other ideas about it. But it's very important that we note, even in this passage, he's turning the question on us. Who, who should you be in the face of the judgment to come? And to understand that, what comes before judgment? Well, we note from 2 Peter 3 that scoffers would appear. We note from 2 Thessalonians 2 that the man of sin would be revealed. And I'm just going to simply say, time doesn't allow me to go into speculation about those uh, passages. But I would encourage you to look at them, come to your own conclusions about them. But it's very important that, that the, again, the main thing we note about the Day of Judgment is that, that readiness aspect, that preparedness aspect. One interesting thing, too, though, is that there's going to be an aspect of leaving earth that, that we need to recognize and understand. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to turn there with me, please. 1 Corinthians 15. This is another place where we just get a whole lot of encouragement from Paul concerning the resurrection. Of course, in the middle of all this, he's talking about how some had denied the resurrection and uh, the fact that if we deny the resurrection, we're of all men most pitiable. We're, we're in an awful state because we're doing this for no purpose, for no reason. But in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Notice that's the second time he said we shall be changed. Verse 53, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then it shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. One great promise is established in this chapter. That this aging, decaying body that I now have, and no matter who you are, no matter how young you are, you are aging and you are decaying. Based on science, what science tells us at the very least. God will give us a new body. And I don't know what that will be. I don't know, I, I tend to think it's going to be of the physical nature as we might think of. But that doesn't make it you know, corruptible per se. But regardless, again, we could speculate all day. But we compare and contrast back to John 5 for this because we need to know that everyone will be resurrected. But in this context, Paul is talking about those who belong to God are going to be ones who are changed. And it seems like that to me at the very least. But again, I'm open to, to conversation there. I want to look at Matthew 25. I mentioned it earlier, but Matthew 25, I really think, shows us the core of what we need to be considering here. Matthew 25 is populated with two different parables, both of which deal with 
preparation and work and, and the focus that we need to have. And then, it's, it's so fascinating, he transitions in verse 31 into something that's not a parable at all. He says in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he'll set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And he'll say to those in the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. There's a great day coming. We sang that song earlier, and I, I, I've been amazed to note that there are some Christians out there that just think of that as a very depressing song. And I really think it just depends on how you look at it. Can we rejoice in God punishing the wicked? I'm not saying we relish in it. I'm saying we praise God for his judgments. I think that's the core of this. And I think those who are on the right, they're going to be the ones that have done all they can for all they can, for all who they can, in a sense that that the Son of Man on his judgment throne, according to Romans 14.10, he will divide them, he will give them that inheritance based on how they've lived their life. Now, some, again, may accuse and say, well, that just sounds like you're talking about works-based salvation. I don't think I am. Because it's still grace at the end of the day. It's His grace. It's His mercy. We note the sheep are awarded their inheritance and blessings from the Father, and the goats are commanded to depart into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And one thing we want to remember, of course, is that that the devil will be in hell with everyone else. The devil doesn't rule over hell as some sort of king. He's going to be burning just as much as anyone else there. It's going to be a sad, horrible place. And none of us should want to be there. I want to say, too, that regardless of the outcome of this, God is just. Second Peter 2. Second Peter 2, please. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. 
We talked about the fact that he uh, did not spare the angels who sinned, cast them down to hell and delivered them chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Verse 5 goes on, did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. I want to just note that if we trust in God, who's delivered all these judgments throughout all time, can we not trust him for the judgment yet to come? I think sometimes we get wrapped up over how God will judge maybe people we love or people we care for. And maybe we get so wrapped up about that that, that we lose sight of what's really, really important. I'm not saying that we show hatred to those who have fallen away from the Lord. Quite the opposite. But I am saying that we need to recognize that I, I rejoice in the things that God wants me to rejoice over. I appreciate the things. I love the things that he loves. And I want to hate the things that God hates. That leads us to our mindset that we need to think about. I need to go to heaven. I'm not going to go to all these passages. I'm going to leave these with you. But just some basic things about heaven. It's eternal. It's, It's never going to end. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. There's no there's never going to be a point where you kind of say, "Oh, well, you know, this is going to end soon, so I know this this good feeling won't stop. Uh will stop at some point." No, heaven will not stop. It will keep going. It's a beautiful place. It's a happy place. It's a place of rest. Do we know what rest really is? Uh maybe sometimes we don't. It's a place of righteousness. Only the righteous will be there. So out of our choices, which would you prefer? The world is going to say that everybody is going to go to heaven. Or that good people will go to heaven. Maybe all faiths will go to heaven. The Bible only says that those who are prepared will go there. That's who we need to be. If Christians have eternal life now, doesn't this mean that we need to see signs of heaven in our brothers and sisters here on earth? And certainly we can have that. We can share in that. When we're, when we're appreciating each other and loving each other the way that we should, we're showing each other those glimpses into heaven. So let's think about that and let's consi- consider that and continue that in our lives. Appreciate the time. Uh, I believe we're going to break for a few minutes. Go from there. I believe just dismissal? Okay. You're dismissed. <laughs>